This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. Manabir Castle is a remote and beautiful Norman ruin on the Pembrokeshire coast in South Wales. The earliest surviving description of the building was written in 1191 by a historian who declares it the most delightful spot in the whole country, although he then admits that he may be biased since he was born there. The writer's name was Gerald of Wales, and the description of his birthplace appears in one of his most famous books, The Journey Through Wales. Gerald was a priest and scholar who worked at the court of the English king and wrote propagandist and engaging accounts of his travels in Ireland and Wales. He was the first foreigner to describe Ireland and his vivid, sometimes grotesque and controversial depictions of animals, legends and historical events as well as, and he was also the first known, he also wrote the first known description of a Welsh male voice choir. These make him one of the most important writers of the Middle Ages. Many of his works are still in print today, more than 800 years after they were written. With me to discuss Gerald of Wales are Henrietta Liza, Emeritus Fellow of St Peter's College, University of Oxford, Michelle Brown, Professor Emerita of Medieval Manuscript Studies at the School of Advanced Study, University of London, and Hugh Price, Professor of Welsh History at Bangor University. Henrietta Liza, we don't know Gerald's exact birth date, but he was born about 1146. Can you give us some idea of the historical background at that time? Well, when he's born, it's actually the period of the so-called anarchy in England when Matilda and Stephen are fighting for the throne, which gives the Welsh a bit of a break because the children and Stephen are much too busy fighting in England. But, of course, by the time he's, um, well, in adolescence, there's been a dramatic change. The throne of England is now occupied by Henry II, who is an Angevin who brings with him vast continental possessions, both in his own right and via his wife. And so the scene changes very considerably. Wales again becomes an object of interest. Um, And it must also be said that Henry II's court becomes a very glittering place to be where there are lots of academics, so to say, or quasi-academics, politicians, theologians, all jostling for a place. So there are lots of bitter rivalries. And it's both an intriguing and interesting place to be and also a very unpleasant place. Hell is... um, well, the court is like hell, as somebody, Mortimer, I think it is, says. The 1066-1146, there isn't such a gap, is there? Was there still a great overhang from the, not the brutal Nor- Norman invasion, the biggest one of the biggest land grabs we've ever seen, takeover of official language, takeover of institutions, takeover of all the primary posts? Was that still vibrant and... A sore. Well, it, it's still a sore, and of course, Wales is a, in a particular ca- in case because to begin with, um, the idea is there will be sort of marcher lords who will keep the Welsh in check. But of course, this doesn't quite work out because the marcher lords themselves then think, oh, actually, we'll go and conquer a bit of Wales. And then they get, as you might say, over mighty subjects, and the king wants to intervene and make Wales his own and Henry I has a very aggressive policy towards Wales and even introduces Flemish settlers to try and sort of dilute the native population so that he you will have more of a hold. I'm sorry? You mean genetically? Yes. Really? Um, so there's a, that adds to the sort of mix and of course also uh, I don't think you can really talk about Wales any more than England as one country. I mean Wales is also divided itself among a number of warring princes but one of the a leading Welsh prince gets killed in 1093 and that sets in 
a train of considerable sort of bitterness. Gerald was born in Wales. had spent a lot of his life working with the English kings in England. Um, what was? Can we, you just tell us a bit more about the relationship between Wales and England then? You've well, talked about. I like the word hell. <laughs> well, that, that's, I'd love a court. bit more about it, hell. It, it's court. That's it's court. That's hell. Um, well, I think I think it, it varies very much. But I mean, if you think about what a mixed situation it is, just think about Gerald's grandmother Nest, who was obviously a very remarkable woman, who is the daughter of this lord or prince who has been killed in 1093. She is then married to a Norman Castan of Pembrokeshire, because Henry I has tried to turn Pembroke into a sort of English county. But not content with this situation, um, she then is abducted by um, another Welsh princeling. Um, she becomes also the mistress of Henry I. She then has another liaison with a Norman constable, and she also has a son by... I'm doing by... a programme about the wrong person. <laughs> a son by... A son by... A son by a Flemish, one of these Flemish settlers. So she has altogether, I think, eight children and two daughters. And so Gerald, through because this is his grandmother, whom he knows, Gerald is connected with sort of everybody who's anybody in Wales. And, of course, his family are, are then going to go on and be the people who conquer Ireland. So, as ever in the Middle Ages, we're talking about families just as much as we're talking about the Welsh or the English. And he revolves around his family to a great Absolutely. extent, doesn't Absolutely, and Nest is see. obviously quite somebody. Yeah, I didn't realise she was that quite a somebody. <laughs> right, Michelle Brown, um, can you tell us about his early life and education? Calm the thing down a little. <laughs> well, I think the Helen of Wales, as Ness was known, um, sets, sets the trend. Um, one of her daughters, Anne Howard, is um, is Gerald's mother. And I think he's, he from a very early stage, he seems to reflect a whole series of diptychs and dichotomies. Um, he's a little bit like um, Bernard the Irishman, as George Bernard Shaw was sometimes described, um, when he's out of Wales and at the English um, court, subsequently he's known as Gerald the Welshman, and when he's actually at home, he's, he's Gerald the Englishman. And so you, you begin to pick that tension up from quite an early age. Um, he tells us that he always shone forth in the family, and he never quite wanted to engage in his brother's rough-and-tumble military games. He was the one who was singled out by Anne Howard and her brother, the Bishop of St David's, for greater things. He was going to be the churchman. He was the one who was... Um, surviving the taunts of his peers and cultivating this inner light. He says that while his brothers built sand castles, he built sand churches. That's right. <laughs> Do you believe that? <laughs> Joel did. <laughs> and he he's packed off to study with the Benedictines at Gloucester, and he has a few nice things to say about them. He didn't think they were the most imaginative, but he got a good grounding. Um, and then, of course, he heads off to Paris in his late teens. And For quite a while, isn't it? Yeah, about a decade. Imagine yeah. spending your 20s in Paris at that time. Yeah, well, this is important because the Benedictines were powerful. We've got a time when the universities and the monasteries are coming through with education. Mm. There's, 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 there's serious intellectual change going on, and he's there. Mm. Could be called one of the centres of it in Paris. He stays for a long time, nearly 10 years. He must learn a great deal. He does the trivium there. Can you just flesh that out a bit? Yeah, OK. So this is the time when the cathedral schools, Hewis, San Victor and others, are, are really beginning to get a little bit of scholastic incision in, in thinking. Um, not empirical thought, but very, very rigorous courses of study that will result in the formation of the universities of Paris, Oxford, etc. And so Gerald is, is being taught by the leading intellectual figures of the day and not only being taught, but rapidly making claims that he's able to teach 
as well. Um, he are they claims substantiated? I mean, can he, or are they just claims? Um, no, I, th- I think there's, there is enough to actually say that, yes, he is. Certainly at a later stage in his career, when he returns to Paris, he's actually teaching at that point and talks about le- filling lecture theatres, people flocking to hear his works and erupting into spontaneous applause <laughs> and praise at it the end of it. It is his book, isn't it? It is his book, <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, we take that with a large pinch of salt, but certainly does seem to have been very well thought of. And we know also that he was buying second-hand books on the Paravis in front of um, Notre Dame de Paris... That's that's rather touchy, isn't yeah, it? very proud of his book collection, yeah. etc. So, so yeah, he is emerging as um, a, a known international figure. He would have been recognised. So he'd come back from Paris, Paris, um, thoroughly and rather uh, thoroughly well educated, m- more than most of his peers. We're still in an age of thugs, aren't we? Really, who are running things on well, the whole. Yeah, I mean the the, the, the schools of the monasteries, etc., had a, a good reputation, but he's cutting edge now, and he'll, he'll have acquired that sort of veneer of French and say as well, so he's going to be quite a sophisticated figure, um, one would imagine, by this period. So he was destined for, and he destined himself for, because it seems as if it was, it was some sort of vocation for the church, but mm. he immediately became, or very soon became, engaged with the English court. What drew him there, and what did he do? Okay, um, well, I think the problems begin to arise when um, he's, he's sort of identified as a figure who, because of his um, connections with the marcher lords of Wales and their increasing activities in Ireland, um, can actually be a useful figure for bridging the, um, the diplomatic network that's absent um, in those delicate relationships at that time and so he begins to attract a certain amount of attention first of all from the Archbishop of Canterbury and at a slightly later date in the 1180s from um, the court Uh, but then those relationships um, start to become complicated. He gets a good church position. He does that largely by ferreting around in Wales for abuses on behalf of the Archbishop and he manages to become Archdeacon of Brecon by um, shopping the um, the poor former incumbent who was an elderly gentleman who was quite happily shacked up with his mistress and Gerald reports him for this and gets him turned out and gets the the living for himself and says that he could quite happily have carried on in that comfortable mediocrity. Um, But when he was at the court, was was he important at the court? Was he just added on because he came from a well-connected family? Was he doing anything that matters? I, d- I don't think so. Initially, he's really just oiling the wheels, as I say, for communications with the um, the Welsh princes, such as Rhysac Griffith, very substantially, and the Fitzgeralds and Fitzstevens in Ireland. Um, but no, it's not until he finally gets a big break when he's given the unenviable task of nursemaiding Prince John on a grand tour of Ireland in 1185. We're not there yet. Um, his uncle was Bishop of... Um, uh, St David's Hugh Price and it seems to have been his main ambition Gerald's uh, uh, main ambition to become to succeed him to become Bishop of St David's and he fought for it extremely hard again and again and lost in the end why was he so um, keen to be Bishop of St David's he was keen at certain stages to be Bishop of St David's at least one has to remember he also claimed at one point that what he really wanted when he was young was a bishopric in England so there's some ambivalence there but I think the family connections as you say the fact he's got an uncle who's been Bishop of St David's all these family connections through the descendants of his grandmother Nest made him sort of ideally suited in his view 
plus the fact he'd had this most advanced education in Paris. Uh, he felt that he was a committed church reformer. And uh, I think he saw St. David's as a sort of natural focus for his ambitions and talents. And also, he was very familiar with the legends and traditions concerning the patron saint, St. David, and traditions that St. David's had once been an archbishopric. And, of course, this is one of the problems uh, Gerald confronts, that he not only wants to be bishop of St. David's, but wants to make St. David's into an archbishopric and um, to be the head of an independent um, province um, from Canterbury. Uh, so you know, he's got all these different connections which I think draw him to St David's and he, to be fair, says he did turn down two bishoprics in Ireland and also Sandaf and Bangor in Wales. So, you know, on balance, I guess St David's was the sort of big one for him, but whether he consistently wanted that throughout his life is, is perhaps more open to question. Well, it does go through his life, and from, from, from an outsider like myself, it seems to be extraordinarily persistent. I mean, he gets... And it's persistent that he, he doesn't get it. Uh, that's the strange thing. He misses it by a, a, a touch uh, twice. Um, the people in St David say, he's our man. Lots of people say, he's our man. And then he goes to Rome three or four times, goes to Rome to plead his case, He's beaten there by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Is the nub of it that the Archbishop of Canterbury does not want a rival Archbishop in Wales and is backed by the English court in that, and is not the block? That's the main block, I think. The first time there's talk of him becoming Bishop of St David's, it's just after his uncle dies in 1176, but Gerald is only about 30. He learns that the king, Henry II, is against it, and he claims that you know, he didn't want to proceed. But when the opportunity arises again, 1198, uh, after the death of the next bishop, um, the real opposition is coming from Hubert Walter, Archbishop uh, of Canterbury, who certainly doesn't want the Welsh Church to become independent of Canterbury. One of the achievements... Well, because Canterbury had, been, uh, had succeeded in bringing the Welsh bishops under its authority during the 12th century, um, had uh, established that they were part of the province of Canterbury, was getting them to make professions of obedience uh, to the archbishop. And obviously there were also potential political implications in a way that if you have ecclesiastical independence, that might strengthen political independence um, and weaken the overlordship of the King of England. And John comes to back the Archbishop in the um, second, the major attempt to become Bishop and indeed Archbishop of, of St. David's, you know, between really 1198 uh, and uh, 1203. But he fails and he fails again later. Um, did the failure to get that particular post did it sour him and his career? Or did he make enemies by saying he was determined to turn it into an archbishop? It sounds politically rather inept to say what you're going to do with a job before you get the job. But there you go. Well, according to Gerald, the canons, you know, the clergy at St. David's wanted him to raise this issue of being an archbishop, uh, of St. David's being an archbishopric. Um, I think that to begin with, it looked quite hopeful. He goes to Pope Innocent III, Innocent III listens to him and says, right, you can look in the papal archives to see if there's any historical justification for this. He finds out that a predecessor, a Norman bishop called Bernard, half a century earlier, had got pretty far along the road of getting recognition of St. David as an archbishopric, but the matter was unresolved on Bishop Bernard's death. So to begin with, he's got a lot of support, but I mean, there's, there's sort of two related factors. He's perhaps naive, perhaps too much of a scholar, not sufficiently politically astute, um, and 
doesn't see that this is just unacceptable both to Canterbury and to the King of England. Um, and also there's sort of uh, wider sort of uh, political considerations. In the end, Innocent III can't afford to alienate King John because at the time the Pope is backing King John's nephew to be the Emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor. So you know, there's a wider political uh, uh, context there. Did this, let's call it a failure, and um, did this affect the rest of his career? And if so, how? The main effect, I think, is that it gives him more time to write, um, effectively. So, so and we benefit from that. Uh, and he kind of relives all this in, in a number of autobiographical works and in many other writings. Uh, for a short time, he falls out of favour. He's called a traitor. Uh, and it's interesting, though an agreement is made in the end, uh, you know, in 1203, uh, that um, he, he's allowed to keep some, some benefices and so on. It's interesting, he goes off to his relatives in Ireland to let things cool down for a couple of years. Can I come to Ireland with Henrietta Eliza? In, in 1184, he went on a journey to Ireland with Prince John. Yes. And uh, uh, was he was he regarded as a safe pair of hands to look after this troublesome young man and introduce him to Ireland, which John was then going to get a massive title about being whatever they called themselves about Ireland in those days? Well, I think so. I mean, he goes to Ireland, of course, he's already been once before, so he knows the country, and he goes because it's his family, basically, who are conquering it. I mean, they thought, yippee, this is a chance to build up our own territory outside the orbit of the sort of Anglo-Welsh problems, we can now go to Ireland and become terribly powerful there. And, of course, then Henry II thinks, oh, my goodness, I can't miss out on this either. So, and this is a great opportunity to find something for John to do. So he does go. He doesn't stay very long, and John comes back before he does, but he certainly takes the opportunity to describe the well, the Irish, I'm sorry, as completely um, barbaric and I think he partly does this because these sort of things are being said about the Welsh and I don't think Gerald really likes that because I think at heart Gerald is for all kinds of reasons very proud of his Welsh ancestry but he loves being rude about the Irish because this is the justification for his family going in there and taking control. It's classic propaganda, isn't it? You go to a place, you say they're absolutely terrible, they're barbaric, they're backward, they're primitive. What they need to change their life is us. Yes. And we'll go in and take over and us will set them right, make them Christian, decent. Absolutely. Wash themselves in the morning and everything will be fine. Absolutely. He strikes, yeah, so it's proper. He strikes me as being wonderfully gullible. He reports a hairy woman of limerick and a fish with teeth and a lion mating. Do you think he listens to the tall tales of the Irish around the bog fires at night? I don't think he is gullible. I think all really? these stories are little parables. I mean, he is, as Michelle has, has said, he's a very well-educated man. And actually, you know, every time he tells you a, a sort of funny story or a weird story, he will then discover on the same page that quotations from Seneca, Horace, whoever... Well, why does he do the silly stories in, in the first place, then? Well, I think the silly stories are partly a way of suggesting... Um, quite how silly the Irish are. But I don't think that's only it. I think he's really interested in exploring the boundaries between what you can believe and what you can't. And this is a but huge he seems problem. he's asking us to believe these stories about fish with teeth. He, is, well, teeth. he says, watch, he quite often he'll say, well, I don't know whether you believe this or not, and I don't know whether I believe it or not. If I don't believe it, then maybe I'm putting limits on God's power. If I do believe it, you'll just say I'm gullible. I think he's throwing it back all the time to the reader. He's expecting really intelligent readers. After all, this is, this is written in good Latin. These are not just far-side tales, I don't think. I think it's actually very sophisticated. Michelle, Michelle Brown. 
Yeah, following up from that, <clears throat> I think <clears throat> there are some agendas going on here as well. He's writing, if you like, the marvels of the West as an antidote to the marvels of the East. Everybody's looking eastwards, the Crusades, etc. And he's saying there are things that are equally marvellous in the Western parts of the known world. And he would like the benign effects of Angevin rule to both be extended in, in both directions, but also to recognise that the Celtic peoples have um, mysteries of their own and cultures of their own that can contribute to this universal, benign Angevin worldview. And I think when he has... Um, if we think about some of the passages, that the, the more sort of fabulous things... Yes, has he just been told a tall tale in the pub when he um, refers to something which goes right back to um, the earliest Irish tales, the Ulster Cycle, etc., but it's garbled. He says that um, the king, the high king, Tyr Connell, um, mates with a white mare and then bathes in a stew of her flesh, which he and his people partake of, and that this affirms his kingship. And that, of course, is, is um, a contrast with the civilised, God-given kingship of a king near you, Henry II. Um, and there is a, a sort of reference back in the Ulster Cycle. It's not a literal mating. It's a symbolic mating of the king with a symbolic white mare um, assuring good fortune and the union of mankind and nature. So there are sort of little things there that he picks up and embroiders in all sorts of ways. And yes, he talks about the bearded woman of Limerick, who, and I quote, um, except for her hairy spine and long flowing beard, was otherwise sufficiently feminine in her attributes. And the cowman of Wicklow, who was the progeny of a local farmer and his favourite cow, who becomes the Norman garrison's pet and is murdered by the locals because he's become too popular. And then you get odd things like... Joanna of Paris, princess, who's accused by her royal in-laws of mating with a lion in the royal zoo and is burnt at the stake. Now, it's interesting that when subsequently he comes in the conquest of Ireland to talk about the legitimisation of his own family's mercenary activities there as a legitimate political conquest, the papal sanction for that is on grounds of bestiality and gross moral turpitude. He wrote two books about Ireland, and he, he does talk about topography. I mean, we've dwelt, perhaps my leaves taken up too enthusiastically, we've dwelt on this part. He is actually trying to describe the countries he sees it uh, less sympathetically in Ireland and people have been enraged ever since, Irish historians, with good cause, I think, but then in Wales. But that's what he is trying to do. So we get Irish historians, however much they rail against them today, still ha can find stuff there which gives them evidence of that particular time, yeah. which is useful. But again, he's still conflicted. He'll say things like, you know, the Irish are the most naturally beautiful people but any problems with that have come because they haven't behaved um, morally. Does he say much about the country, qua country, about agriculture, how they earn yeah. a living, uh, where they live, yeah. that sort of stuff? Absolutely. He talks about a pastoral rural economy um, which hasn't had the benefit of um, centralised urban society, which isn't true, actually, because you've got the, the Viking towns, etc. So all the time he's actually making the counterpoint um, rather unfavourably with Britain. But then he comes in with the things that he can't resist, like um, there is nobody in the world who can play musical instruments more adroitly and adeptly than the Irish, and the Normans don't understand this because basically they ain't got no rhythm. And he talks about the wondrous book at the Shrine of Kildare, which is so intricate and perfect in its mysteries and artistry that you would think it was the work of angels, not of man. So again, all of this time, it's, it's the natural gifts of the people and the richness of the place and the landscape and the resources and the need to actually integrate those benefits into a bigger kingdom. Hugh uh, Price in 1888, sorry, in 1188, he went on a journey around Wales with 
the then Archbishop of Canterbury, and can you tell us the reason for that? The main reason they went was to preach the crusade. This was all triggered by events in the Middle East, the fall of the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem. And they're trying uh, to get us to go to war in the Middle East. Yeah, so plenty of contemporary... No, no, we don't do contemporary. But, um, so that's essentially what it's about. Um, this is a, seen as a great shock after almost uh, 90 years, um, the, the loss of power there. And uh, essentially trying to get Welsh uh, soldiers to go uh, and fight... Um, and uh, the uh, Archbishop and Gerald and a few others uh, go in a sort of clockwise direction around Wales, basically around the edges, uh, recruiting. According to Gerald, they got about 3,000 people to sign up for this. Whom Richard I refused to take with him. Well, it, all, it was all a bit of a fiasco in as much as uh, Henry II, who said he would go, was died. And then after that, uh, there, was, there was no uh, support for it. And uh, Richard the, uh, the Lionheart, of course, um, went off on his own. But that's another story. Is this escorting of the Archbishop of Canterbury around Wales something that he does out of the goodness of his heart? Or is he still politicking away here? No, it's part of his job, I think, as a royal clerk. He's at, the mo- at that time in the service of the court. But it's, of course, a good example of why he was useful to the court as someone with all these connections in Wales, especially in South Wales. They spend about four weeks in southern Wales and they rush through North Wales about eight days. This is a very hostile, alien environment. He doesn't have the family connections. I think there's much more resistance up there. Um, but it's because of the connections, really, that Gerald says, I think he can arrange for them to have... Uh, guides to cross. I mean, there's a story of them crossing quicksands uh, at one point in South Wales, and Gerald nearly loses his books, which was about the worst thing that could happen to him from his point of view. And, um, you know, he's also got the support of the Lord Rhys, Rhys Ap Griffith, the dominant native ruler in South Wales at the time, who meets them when they enter Wales, and then meets them again at his castle in, in Cardigan. Henry Eliza, how he, he describes the Bible of this is yet is another book, and again one of the first books, not the first book written about Wales, the journey through Wales, the first of two books through Wales. Can you give us some idea of that? Well, it's much more than a travel book. Yes. I mean, although you can trace the itinerary, and you know he does tell you how how exhausting it is, and and indeed problems with quicksands and so on. But I think it's the sort of asides that are really much more interesting. And it's that I don't think it is primarily about Wales. It's primarily about about what it is to be human and what it is to be animal. And I think all these stories, which we were talking about already, bring up this again and again. It's this: where do you draw the boundary, and where do you draw boundary the boundary between yeah. between human and animal, mm. and how do you cope with inheritance? And for instance, if a dog hasn't got a tail, he says that means that any any puppies that are born as, as a result of this dog won't have tails either. So you think, OK, he's on the side of inheritance. But then you discover that actually there's a little pig that was suckled by a dog. And lo and behold, this little pig, because it's been suckled by this dog, is actually much better at hunting than all the other little dogs. So you think, oh, actually, it's sort of it's it's not just inheritance; it's something else. It's sort In a of nurture, sense, nurture yeah. and so, um, and and I think this this you know he's he's it, it's again it's this sort of boundary between. Um, human and, and animal, which also comes up again and again in his work. And I think this all ties in with the intellectual interests of the 12th century elite. They just don't know where to draw boundaries. The world is in a state of flux. It's partly in a state of flux because there's new learning, the new works of Aristotle, I mean the old works of Aristotle, have been newly discovered in in the West. And they are having to rethink 
all their ideas about what God does, what it happens just naturally, and what is animal and what is human. Michelle Brown, there was another book on whales, The Description of Whales. Does he tell us about whales in terms of there were mountains there, there were farms there. I'm trying to to be mundane here. Uh, can you uh, yeah. help? I mean, it links in with the itinerary where you, you have a certain amount of that, obviously. And yes, it'll talk about, again, the natural resources of whales, the pattern of life, etc. But the way in which the description of whales is structured is, um, if you like, it's, it's triptych in which you actually look at the country and its people. And then you start analysing the good points about them and then... The bad points. What are the good points about them? The good points about them are things like um, uh, they sing in parts wonderfully, coyly. They play the harp beautifully. They shave regularly. Um, they are incredibly hospitable. Um, all of the, the sort of traditional Celtic virtues, if you like. Um, and then he goes on to the negative side of it: the fact that they love to indulge in intrigue the fact that they can be rather greedy, especially where land and inheritance is concerned, and that Surely they subdivide this isn't just Welsh, is it? No, no. But then, then he comes down at the end saying, well, having weighed up both of the pros and the cons of the people, this is a, br a blueprint of how you could successfully govern them. And he then goes on to talk about the importance of the Norman Marcher lords in actually pinning down the country, creating this sort of buffer zone, etc. And then he goes on to say, and this is how the Welsh could then rebel against this and overcome it. And the wonderful phrase that he says, if only they were inseparable, they would be insuperable that if only the Welsh can actually come together, get over themselves and their traditional um, almost tribal and family alignments and affiliations and actually come together as a nation, that they could withstand the Angevins and be independent. And he ends with this encounter between the king and the old man of Pencada, who says that, well, however much you try to take over this country, at the supreme judgment seat at doomsday, I would hazard my soul on the fact that it will be the Welsh and the Welsh language that still represent this part of God's creation. Hugh Price, um, we have a man who's quite a bit Welsh, a quarter Welsh, but he's, he feels, at least whatever he feels, he's Welsh and Anglo-Norman. Do you feel in this study, these studies of Wales, do you feel this pull between the two or...? Well, certainly, and uh, in the uh, description of Wales, uh, he's trying to give the impression, at least, of being even-handed, and he says he's descended from both peoples, therefore he must you know, be uh, just to both. Uh, my feeling, though, is originally, when he first wrote that, on the whole, he's backing the claims of the marchers, uh, the, the marcher lords in Wales, the English crown. He has a passage which he deletes in later versions there, where he says, well, basically, the best thing to do with Wales is to get rid of all the, the, the Welsh and either colonise it afresh or just turn it into a hunting reserve. Um, he does pull back from that in a later edition, where he's, after the St David's juggle, more sort of pro-Welsh, if you like. But I think it gives you an idea. And also, just to pick up on what Michelle was saying about um, the old man of Pencader. It sounds very rousing, and Welsh patriots have quoted this over the centuries, you know, that the, the Welsh language and the Welsh will be here till, till the Day of Judgment. But in the context of the book, in fact, I think it's, it's, it's highly ambiguous because what he's trying to do is deflate Welsh pretensions that they were going to recover their status as the Britons, recover Britain. And he's saying, well, 
they might, with a bit of luck, just hold on to this little corner of Britain. So, you know, you can look at it from both ways. And I think he is deeply conscious of the tensions. And, of course, people exploited it. I mean, uh, after Henry II's death, he was accompanied to Wales by, by a Cistercian monk uh, from England who claimed he had supported his Welsh kinsfolk in, in rebellions against the English. Henry Eliza, can we talk about Gerald's style well, in these numerous books, many of which have survived, which is in itself a bit of a miracle for eight centuries, and are still read? Can you describe his style, his intellectual and where he was in the times, was he thought of as a European writer at that time, if we can use the word Europe? Well, there's a great vogue at the time for writing these sort of stories, these wonder stories. He's not the only one at all. There's Gervais of Tilbury, who also has stories of extraordinary things that are happening and who is exploring, say, not only the boundaries between human and animal, but between what's actually going on under, in, the, in an underworld, is there another world that, to which you can have access? There's a story of a boy who um, sort of escapes and has a sort of secret life, and every now and then he comes and talks to his mum, and then he goes back again. Of course, his mum undoes it all because she asks for a golden ball, and so that, of course, is the end of that particular story. But this interest and exploration in other worlds are partly to do with actually, I think, travelling to actual other worlds, but as I, said, I think also to the intellectual discoveries of the 12th century. And he quotes Horace at one point in, in joking, um, I think it, it's, we, we joke and joking tell the truth. And I think there's a lot of that in Gerald. And he is searching for, searching for certainties that he knows he will never find. I'm just trying to get a centre here because he wrote quite a lot of books and yet we, we talk quite a bit about trying to be Bishop of St David's and showing people around Ireland and taking Archbishop around there and cleaning up the morals when he was Archdeacon and so on and so forth. But do you feel that he, his centre was, and he felt that one of his main purposes was to write? Did he? Oh, yes, These he were says not so. knocked off stuff along no, the no, way. No, 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 he no. revises them, I don't know how many times, he revises them constantly, and he says, this is the one thing, I, I, I will die, but my works will go on. And whatever disappointment he may have had as far as the bishop or archbishop of St David's is concerned, never mind. He thinks that he has made it as an intellectual and and he does, after all, move in intellectual circles. And his last years are spent at, with a very um, important figure in Lincoln, William de Montebus. And I think this, this, he definitely sees himself as a top scholar, which is why I think everything he says we need to take seriously, even if it appears to us slightly ludicrous. Even the fish. He would have been wonderful on Radio 4. <laughs> too late, too late, Henriette. Um, Michelle, the... <coughs> one um, one feature of his manuscripts is the illustrations um, and the number of them, and also if we can double this up with his skill as a cartographer. Mm. So we not only have these manuscripts in Latin, probably dictated, <coughs> probably written by somebody else, written out by somebody else, yeah. handwritten by somebody yeah, in the scriptorium. Yeah. So can you just briefly tell us about the illustrations and the cartography? Yeah, um, I think Gerald prides himself on his rhetorical style and he's, um, he, he likes to be very um, visual in the verbal metaphors that he uses, the picture poems that he summons up. So um, it's almost a natural thing for him to then want to use imagery to expand this even further, to increase his vocabulary and his communication skills. It's almost like inventing the after-dinner um, slideshow or the PowerPoint presentation. And especially in the latter part of his life, in um, after 1206, when he's retiring to Lincoln and um, is, is see, overseeing the public 
application of his works, I think, there, um, you find that he increasingly wants to build in the visual element. So, now, watch it. can you give a listener's idea what sort of visual? What's he doing? Yeah, um, the one that attracts most of the visuals out of the surviving manuscripts, and there are about 30 sort of early manuscripts of the topography and, and expugnatio um, of Ireland, and that's a lot for a comparative sample yeah. of how much would have survived. Well, what were they? Um, and so you have marginal illustrations that. Um, depict the bearded woman of Limerick, that depict the work of angels being produced by a scribe, that depict the king of Tyrconnell bathing in the mayor's stew, that depict a whole little procession of bestiary animals, and that make sort of little mistakes in scholarship en route, like um, Gerald uh, thinks that barnacle geese, are actually, they grow on trees, because he's confused barnacles growing on rocks with the birds, and that enters into the bestiary mainstream. So it's, if you like, the little vignettes and the things that are most sort of racy or most intriguing in his narrative then become the subject of visual enhancements as well. And then you have the maps which again illustrate the itinerary and cite Wales and Ireland within a European cartographic worldview. But the maps were for the time good, weren't they? Incredibly good, yeah, and very unusual at that time. Um, There'd been a world map, first world map produced in Canterbury in the 1030s, and it's almost as if he's citing his part of the world within that indigenous cartographic tradition, which in turn is indebted to that of Ptolemy and um, some of the ancient cartographers and picking up where they left off. And this is a very new thing that feeds into the whole Mapamundi tradition. Um, He goes on to influence in this Matthew Paris, who again um, picks up on the cartographic elements, the itinerary, the linear journey, and how you map that and transpose that onto uh, um, a projection, if you like. Just to briefly, Hugh Price, give the listeners an idea that he wasn't just stuck in Wales and Ireland, wonderful as both those places are, but he did write other books, including one concerning the instruction of a prince, which there was a tradition growing up and grew and grew and grew. How good was his instruction of a prince? Well, his instruction of a prince is a sort of mixture of the conventional and, if you like, the original. Um, The first book is giving you a sort of if you like, more conventional mirror of princes, how the good ruler should should be. But then the, the rest of the book is, in fact, uh, a very hostile account of the rise and fall of Henry II and uh, a condemnation of the Angevin dynasty. Uh, it's a bit of a turnaround, isn't it? It is, and it shows... I mean, this was a book that he kept going... I mean, he started writing it more or less when he was still with the court or just at the end of that time, but he doesn't finish it till the time when some of the um, English barons have invited um, the uh, uh, Prince um, Louis, the son, son of the King of France, to be their king instead of King John um, at the end of John's reign. And I think it taps into the sort of wider disillusion with the Angevins, which Would you see in Magna Carta and so on. Get, Sorry, excuse me. Would it be too cruel to say he's getting on the side of the King of France in case he does come over and you can have another crack at being Bishop of... <laughs> well, I think by that stage, perhaps, he, he thought that uh, his, his days of doing that were over. He, he claims he turned it down uh, when the time came just before that. But uh, I think there's also a certain sort of um, sentimental attachment to Paris. The 12th century kings of France are really good at PR. They get really good write-ups from a lot of uh, scholarly writers like Gerald uh, because of their support for the well, church the and scholarship. Well, did come over and had a... Uh, had his little moment on the throne and then got sent back when, the, when whoever they were uh, decided that we would revert to Henry's. Uh, Henry Eliza, can you give us some idea of his influence and his place? Are we talking about a man who is almost wholly remembered for these dozen or so books or are we talking about a man who really had an influence on court politics, really had an influence on the way Wales and uh, Ireland were taken into account 
Well, I think he has an influence on how people thought about Ireland as a country that was totally barbaric and in need of civilization. And I think his work there has a long and extraordinarily harmful effect. But I think in general, I would go back, I think I'd rather go back to um, Michel's point about his sort of bestiary style, because I think that's what's very striking. There's, in a sense, he he is in this tradition of best, bestries are sort of newish in England in the 12th, 13th century, and they describe the natural world not only as it is, but also allegorically. And, and this is, after all, how most scholars see everything. They see it actually as it is, and then they add the allegorical interpretation. And his description of beavers is taken absolutely from a bestiary and the, it combines both looking at beavers seeing how they build their dams seeing how long they stay underwater and then having this extraordinary story about how actually their testicles are very prized and um they they know this and so they um cut them off and chuck them in in chuck them away on just a second <laughs> just a second you're going too fast you started with helen and you're now ra- who cuts them off the beavers themselves the, the beavers themselves right. The beavers castrate themselves so that they won't get killed for their testicles. It's all too much. And <laughs> this comes in the bestiary and it comes in Gerald of Wells and I think it's a clue to the world in which he belongs. Beavers' testicles tells you all because he's also described to begin with how beavers make their dams, how they stay underwater and you think you know exactly where you are and then it flips over into this sort of magical world. Michelle, can you just can you give us a roundup of where you where you what influence you think he had, yeah. if any? How in to politics? survive in politics and high places by self castration? Yeah. Um, I, well, I think um, looking at Gerald's own words in his autobiography, uh, I think what he does he becomes a desktop publisher. He's the first to actually illustrate his own works and have a say over how you integrate that, which is a very modern thing to do. It's a new genre that he's really um, helping to bring forward of travel writing rather than history per se and doing it through a sort of um, ethnographic studies, however flawed. Um, and I'm he's very sorry, really sorry, but your eyes were closed so I couldn't catch your attention. You were concentrating so hard. Thank you very much <laughs> Michelle Brown, Henrietta Eliza and Hugh Price and next week it'll be the Carthaginian General Hannibal. On we go. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this BBC podcast, why not try others such as The Forum, the discussion programme about global ideas. To find out more, visit bbcworldservice.com slash forum.